Hello and welcome to this edition of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host Hinal Shah. I'm on the MBA program at the Wharton School. Our guest today is Michael Sigmund, a partner at Broadhaven Ventures, where he focuses on early stage fintech investments globally. Michael has spent his career as a financial technology investor and operator. Prior to Broadhaven, he was an operator at two fintech startups, iCapital Network an alternative investments technology platform, and Mosaic, a residential home originator. Michael started his career at Goldman Sachs in London and holds a bachelor's degree from the London School of Economics. Now, let's jump into the conversation with Michael. Welcome, Michael. Thanks for joining us on the Wharton Fintech podcast. Thanks, Hanal. Really great to be here. To kick off, why don't you walk us through your background? Yes, yeah, so I'm a uh, partner at Broadhaven Ventures. We're an early stage fintech VC fund that invests globally. We were built off the back of business that my partner built. Greg Phillips is one of the co-founders of Broadhaven Capital Partners, a market-leading independent fintech investment bank. So we're able to leverage that platform to help our early stage fintech companies. But really, I've been in fintech my entire career. So the journey really started in, uh, after high school went to London for what became an accidental gap year, tried to play football, semi-pro, got injured, ended up working for a nonprofit called Room to Read. It was a acclaimed international literacy NGO and really learned there about how, how you could build a business, whether it was a nonprofit or a for-profit and create an impact as well. And then went to London School of Economics for my undergrad. That's where we met Hinal. We were both part of the London School of Economics Alternative Investments Conference. So I was exposed to the world of finance that way. And then studied social policy and international relations at the same time. So was really kind of interested in how you could apply financial services to kind of people's everyday lives and the everyday economy. So that was really what kind of got me down the path of fintech. And then really as a professional, have been in fintech my entire career. So started at Goldman on the principal strategic investments team in the early days of fintech. I think when I started in 2012, end of 2012, 2013, $3 $3 billion venture capital money globally had been invested in fintech. So it's been quite an interesting ride since then. And then was early employee, was the first sales hire at a company called Mosaic, a solar finance business. Done about a billion dollars of residential home solar loan originations. And then moved to New York and helped build the sales team as a pre-product employee. Number eight at a company called iCapital Network, where we've tried to democratize access to alternative investment funds and really provide the infrastructure for both institutions and individuals to access those funds. So now I have about $55 billion of assets on that platform. So I've kind of seen it from an operating side and an investing side, and it's been, it's been a lot of fun so far. Yeah, that certainly sounds like it's been a very fun and interesting journey that you've had. And yes, I do remember very fondly the AIC uh, days as well. It doesn't seem like it was too far or too long back, although it's been over a decade now. It has, 10, 10 years. You're making me feel old here. Hey, a lot more to go. (laughs) So yeah, coming back, you know, specifically to venture capital, you know, at what point did you feel that, you know, this was going to be the part for you? And how did you sort of go about making that happen? Or, you know, as with many people, did you just fall into it? Yeah, it's a good question. So, you know, I grew up in a pretty entrepreneurial and tech forward 
house. My, my dad and mom were actually both in the tech world. My mom was a developer in the 80s, believe it or not. My dad was in the tech world as well. That's where they met. So I think I was always exposed to technology and, and entrepreneurship very early on. And that, I think, probably shaped the way that I think about things, maybe in some ways more subconsciously than consciously, because I didn't expect to necessarily go into venture capital. It wasn't necessarily a career path. But what I did realize relatively early on, really from my experience at Room to Read in a gap year, this, this accidental gap year before high school and college, sorry, between high school and college, is that you know, building businesses can have a really big impact on people's lives. And particularly when it comes to financial services and fintech, I think what's attracted me to, to fintech is that you know, financial services impacts and touches everybody's lives in some way. So that's what's really gotten me excited about being involved in fintech, financial services, and, and really being an investor in this space. You get to help so many different businesses and touch so many different people's lives in different ways. So that's really how I got into fintech. I mean, I think it's... Um, I've been thinking about it a lot this week. The past few weeks, I've been watching a show called Sunderland Till I Die. It's a show on Netflix about a professional soccer or football and UK parlance team in the Northeast England to shipping town that, you know, that kind of got passed by as industry moved on. And the team, you know, over the past few years got relegated from the premiership, the top league in English football, and they lost a lot of money. But I think what, what really struck me is that this show is as much about money and the impact of finance on people's lives and towns and cities as it is about football. So, you know, tying that all together with what I studied, which was, you know, social policy and international relations, which is all about how governments and people can impact people's well-being and, you know, make life worth living. I think, you know, part of the reason I'm really attracted to fintech is because it gives me the chance to impact people's lives in a positive way, whether it's how do you help them save or spend or invest, get a mortgage, get a student loan. And, and, you know, fintech and financial services ends up being about the everyday economy. So that's why I love doing what I do. Great. And could you tell us a little bit more about Broadhaven strategy? Yeah. You know, so at Broadhaven... You know, we are an early stage fintech investor. We invest globally. We believe that fintech is a global, is very much a global game. Great companies can be created anywhere. And I think in, in underbanked and underpenetrated places, there's really a, a lot of interesting opportunities in fintech. So we, you know, generally lead pre-seed and seed rounds. We'll also be large participant in pre-seed and seed rounds. Um, and then we'll participate in series A through C rounds as part of a syndicate or a follow-on investor and try to be as helpful as possible to those companies. You know, we're generally investing, you know, 500,000 to over a million dollar US checks initially, and then we reserve for follow-on. You know, we think it's important to retain some capital to help our businesses they continue to grow and support them. And then we also get very involved. So early on, we tend to sit on boards. I'm currently on five boards as either a director or observer. And we feel that's really important because, you know, we having been on the operating side, both my partner and I have been being a founder is really hard and doing everything we can to help them build their business, build their team get them to the next round, we feel is really important. And by being on a board, we feel that being close to the founder and being able to help as quickly as possible and understand what's going on with the business, understand the problems ends up being really important. So that's kind of our artisanal approach to seed is that we like to get very involved in less companies, but have more at stake so that we can help them and, and really feel aligned with them. And what do you look for in a company? Are there any unique or contrarian signals that you like to track or focus on? Yeah, so I think two high-level points. One is, I think, in fintech, you really have to balance being a disruptor versus having industry experience. I think in certain cases, particularly in fintechs that are digital enablers, so companies that are 
enabling financial institutions to do their jobs better, serve customers better, coming from industry. So from a big bank or financial institution can actually be really helpful. Having that network, knowing how to sell into banks ends up being really important. I think that balance is actually very important in fintech, maybe unlike some other industries. Uh, The other piece of that related to it is that in fintech, you can move fast, but you can't break things. So you can't get things wrong. You can't trip up with the regulators. And that, I think, makes it a little bit different than some other aspects of tech where moving fast is really the advantage. It's certainly an advantage in fintech. And we've seen many fintechs do well by outpacing incumbents in that regard. But you really have to be careful about how you, you, know, how you build your business. You may have to get regulated. That may take more capital in the beginning. So I think you know, when looking for a founder or team, you know, certainly... A lot of times we like to see people with experience in fintech or financial services or who've had kind of an experience trying to solve the problem that they're, that they're trying to solve. So I think that ends up being important to us. Uh, I will say this though, we are also pretty thesis driven in terms of how we think about investing. One of our theses is that particularly in emerging markets, we see a lot of non-fintechs having the opportunity to become fintechs. So that's where we deviate from what I said prior, which is that you know, having industry experience is important. We see a lot of businesses, we have six companies in Latin America. A few of them are actually non-fintechs. One is a digital freight forwarder called Nowports, kind of like Flexport in the US. That's a logistics business, not a fintech business right now, but there's very much you know, fintech and financial services aspects to their business. When you think about what SMEs that they're serving need, they, need, they might need payment solutions, they might need insurance on the goods that, that are being transported. They may need working capital or lending capital to be able to, you know, finance the purchase of those orders. So, you know, there are a lot of businesses we see and we believe have the chance to become fintech solutions over time through this idea of embedded finance. So in that case, you know, we relax our standards on do these founders need to be fintech experts or have financial services experience because we think that can be added to a team over time. And, you know, that's a big piece of how we think about things, particularly in less developed markets from a financial services perspective, where there's underpenetration of banking, financial services, ecosystems, places like Latin America, even parts of Asia, there's huge opportunities to build non-fintechs that could become fintechs over time because they're meeting customers' points of need. Got it. And I guess given everything that's been going on with COVID and all right now, this probably presents an interesting opportunity for many uh, non-fintech companies to embrace some elements of the fintech ecosystem, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So I think that's certainly one trend is, you know, people are aggregating on platforms, digital platforms, whether it's e-commerce brands. If they're a merchant, they're probably spending a lot of time on Shopify trying to figure out how to sell their products digitally using e-commerce solutions like Shopify. And, And Shopify can provide fintech solutions to a lot of their merchants. But then it's also, it's not just COVID, which is certainly having an impact and acceleration on digital payments in particular, but it's also the maturation of the fintech industry. You've seen a number of businesses, including some of your podcast guests, I think you had Clay from Galileo on, you know, there's a number of businesses that are building the infrastructure to enable non-fintechs like an Uber or a Lyft to become fintechs and offer debit card products, payment solutions all sorts of different fintech attached products that is really being made possible by this infrastructure layer. And I think that's a huge development in the fintech ecosystem where you're seeing companies like started out with Plaid, which was enabling people to move money from one bank account to another and enabling fintechs to really take deposits away from traditional banks to banking as a service and payments as a service platforms. 
that are enabling non-fintechs to offer fintech problems directly on their platforms, which ends up being a really big deal for them because then they're able to create this closed ecosystem where they can retain the monetary value on their platform and make sure people stay on their platforms as consumers or as merchants and then generate more income from the flow of capital that stays in their ecosystem rather than goes outside of it. Great. Shall we switch gears to talking a little bit about your portfolio? Sure. Why don't you tell us about some of your uh, favorite investments and why you like them? Oh man, you're, you're making me pick. I like all of them. So, so uh, I can't believe you're going to make me pick, but I, I think, you know, that there's certainly a few trends and themes to pull out. So I'll, I'll pull out some of those trends and themes, you know, and think about it from that perspective. So one trend that we've seen really unfold over the past few years, if FinTech 1.0 over kind of the 2010 era was really about disruption. So that was the likes of Lending Club or Zopa trying to disintermediate banks and financial institutions by providing a better consumer experience, lower costs, things like that. FinTech kind of 2.0 in the middle before we've gotten to kind of current state of FinTech was really about FinTech and incumbent collaboration and partnerships. So I think in the kind of 2015 to 2017 era, there's been, there was a lot of hope for fintechs partnering with incumbents, maybe even acquiring a lot of those fintech incumbents acquiring a lot of those fintechs. We've seen some of that. Plaid got acquired by Visa. Goldman acquired Clarity Money. Many other fintech incumbent collaborations or acquisitions. But I think that was a trend that we thought was going to play out in a meaningful way. And I think as seed investors, we've had opportunities to work with some of those companies. One of them is a company called, called Live Oak that just got sold to DocuSign a few weeks ago for $38 million. They've created a platform to enable enterprises to conduct business remotely and virtually. So I think a business like that is really important to the, the transformation within the enterprise of customer experience and, and serving customers better. Banks and financial institutions, they may be slow, but they're certainly not dumb. So they realize they need to create better experiences for customers in order to retain those customers. They need to do it in a digital way often to retain those younger customers. So a company like Live Oak, I think, you know, we saw in that trend, we led a seed round. Uh, I was on the board uh, as both a director and then an observer. And, you know, we saw that as being a critical function for many large banks who are customers to be able to serve their customers, do things like remote and virtual account opening for wealth clients or completing complex transactions like 401k rollovers. And now with DocuSign, they're going to get into a really important area like remote online notary. So I think businesses like that will continue to exist and continue to play a big role in the fintech space. You know, I, I think then we also think about disruptors and digital challengers. And we think that that has the chance to make a very big impact on the financial services ecosystem, particularly in areas outside of the US. So, you know, we've invested in businesses like Kayash in Japan, a digital bank in Japan, where when you kind of think about the, the market dynamics there, you have a huge market, 126 million people. It's the third largest country by GDP. Yet there's only 18% cashless payment penetration. So compare that to 60% in China, 89% in Korea, 55% in the UK. So there's this very weird dislocation of very advanced economy, very mobile economy, but yet very much a cash-based economy. So 65% of all payments are in cash and there's no real-time visibility of payments. So we recently invested in, in Kayash's $45 million Series C. It was a little bit later for us than, than we normally do. But you know, I think we see a, a venture-like opportunity there because they're really transforming the way 
that Japanese consumers interact with payments and ultimately kind of financial services writ large. So I think something like that is quite interesting when you think about the scope and magnitude of what digital banks and challengers can do to create a new experience and and ecosystem for financial services. So I think that's an area that we are very intrigued by. We're seeing that happen in both developed markets. We're also investors in Moneyline in the US, which is doing something very similar, building a digital bank in the US. And I think that's that's something that's just going to continue. I don't think it would be surprising to see Digital Challenger Bank become a 50 plus billion dollar business over time. You know, they're providing such different experiences. There's such big markets in the US and the UK even. And then emerging markets, I think, present a really big opportunity for a lot of these challengers who are really going up against incumbents who have not penetrated large portions of their population. So that's kind of the third theme from our portfolio that I'm really excited about, which is investing in emerging markets, fintech businesses that have the chance to become horizontal platforms. So one of those is, is Credit Justo as one of the first investors there. We co-led a seed round in 2017 with Elevar Equity as a small business lender. It's become the market leader. Recently raised a $42 million Series B from Goldman Sachs in 72. But there's a real opportunity due to lack of credit penetration to SMEs, it's about 34% in Mexico, and there's roughly 5 million formal small businesses. There's a big opportunity to build a horizontal platform there where they can serve multiple aspects of a small business's financial life in a way that you just couldn't do that in a more developed market like the US or Europe because there are other players who are in each specific vertical. But there's the opportunity for these platforms to become massive in emerging markets. One company not in our portfolio, but I think that has the opportunity to do that is a company like Nubank in Brazil. You know, they're expanding geographically into Mexico. They can do all sorts of product offerings, either themselves or with others, that make it a really compelling and interesting kind of financial services platform. And that's something we're really excited about. And then I think the other piece in our portfolio is really the non-fintechs becoming fintechs. So we have a number of those now ports and Covi in Latin America. Covi, I mentioned now ports. Covi is a fleet management solution for enabling Uber drivers, and DD drivers in Brazil to lease cars on a weekly basis so that they can drive for Uber or DD because they don't have access to credit or bank accounts to be able to buy or lease their own cars. So there's a lot of things you could do, whether it's payments, insurance, bank accounts on the financial services side for them. So I think that's an interesting play. And we also have another business in the UK we just invested in called Farewell that's really changing the death services industry, but they're meeting people at such an important point in their financial life at the kind of wealth transfer process due to bereavement that creates really interesting opportunities to serve a customer better and in a more fair way when it comes to dealing with the process of estate planning, wealth planning, and even unfortunately death. But I think those are the types of things that we get really excited about when it comes to our fintech portfolio. That paints a very good picture. And it also touches one of my next questions, which was going to be, you know, where do you see the future of fintech? Thanks for, you know, that very interesting view on how you look at the world. Specifically on the future of fintech, I'm going to ask you about a region where I grew up, grew up in Kenya, and I'm always excited to see the prospects of fintech in particular on the African continent. Have you got any particular insights? Do you look at the continent and what have you seen as trends that could be very positive there? Yeah, so I think you bring up a really interesting point, which is that Kenya in particular is actually at the forefront of kind of the mobile revolution in fintech with a lot of the digital solutions when it comes to using a mobile phone to pay 
pay for things. And I think there's been some really interesting opportunities in Africa. It's not a place that we have spent time looking at, uh, in large part because we just aren't as familiar with the region. We've been spending a lot more time in a place like Latin America. So, and we feel that it's important for us to actually spend time in a region, get to know it, be on the ground in order to really understand it. But I think there's actually a lot of parallels between a place like Africa and Latin America when it comes to kind of financial services, because you have high underpenetration of banking services by incumbents. They often don't need to bank a large portion of the population to become highly profitable or efficient banks. So it creates a huge opportunity for fintechs to take meaningful market share away from these incumbents who are really looking the other way. We've seen that happen in Latin America as well. In Mexico, some of the biggest banks there, like BBVA or Santander, they're actually some of the most profitable banks in the world in Mexico. Very high ROE, very high margins, just by banking a small portion of their customers. So I think you combine that with the fact that you have relatively high and increasing mobile phone penetration in many of these countries and Africa and Latin America. And I think you get for a really interesting concoction of disruption opportunity for fintechs because they can offer mobile first solutions, get to consumers easier. They can do things like meet them at the point of need. So for people who may need to drive Uber or Didi to earn a living, that's going to be the way that they're making money, that they're probably going to be doing that on their mobile phone. Then you can start to offer a whole host of other financial services opportunities. Same for merchants. I think you know, there's a huge opportunity to offer merchants mobile money acceptance. And if you can do something like that, you can then start to build really interesting payments platforms, engaging the consumer, and then ultimately creating a closed-loop payments ecosystem, kind of like Square is doing in the US. But you could actually almost in some ways build an even more powerful and bigger solution in a place like Africa or Latin America for that matter. So I think that there's huge opportunity. There are more and more investors looking at businesses in Africa because I think it's a really interesting ecosystem. We haven't spent as much time because we like to be able to spend time on the ecosystem. We like to sit on boards and be close to our businesses. So for us, that's been that's a continent that we have not yet spent as much time in. But at some point, you know, I think we'd be remiss to miss out on it because again, fintech is a global opportunity. And there will be huge regional players that win. And in some cases, I think, become the big brands. I think Nubank has the chance to become the brand for financial services in Latin America due to the size and scale of their platform and what they're able to do and how they're disrupting on the digital side. I think, likewise, Toss in Korea started out as a P2P payments platform. It's now a digital bank that over a fourth of Koreans are using. That has the chance to become a brand in Korea if it already is not. So I think there's huge opportunities in many of these markets outside of US and Europe, where you can almost even see bigger fintechs being built than you see in some of the more developed markets. Great. It's great to see the optimism for many of these markets. Coming back to what's been going on recently across the world, COVID, what impact has it had on your portfolio and your approach to deal making? And more broadly, how do you think it's impacted the fintech industry going forward? Yeah, great, great question. We spent a lot of time thinking about this. I'll start by answering your last question first and then go. So go from kind of the high level view to what it's doing to our portfolio and, and our investing activities day to day. So in terms of fintech, I think there's really three impacts that are coming to the forefront. So one is you're seeing the digital transformation of the enterprise that's happening fast and furious. And I think what that means is that a lot of these solutions that fintechs are providing to incumbents, LiveOak was an example I gave earlier, 
about you know a platform that's enabling banks and financial institutions to get complex business transactions done remotely in a compliant way. I think stuff like that will only continue to accelerate and then it won't get ripped out once COVID is over. So I think the impacts will actually be very far reaching as a result of realizing that there's a decidedly better customer experience associated with it. It's also why you see companies like Zoom being adopted at the enterprise level. And they weren't before, but now they are and people are never going to go back. So I think any business that is building something for the enterprise in fintech is going to have a real opportunity to make their mark and be really valuable to those fintech or sorry to those incumbent financial services institutions. So that's a trend that we see and I think are very interested by. I think on the consumer side, digital payments and the way people interact with consumer financial services is accelerating rapidly as well. So I saw a tweet the other day that I think PayPal said they've since COVID, they've seen Black Friday levels of payments volume because people are paying for things online and digitally. And that's remarkable when you think about that. And I think what that does is show two things. One is that there are a lot of people who've used digital payments in the past and like it and will only continue to use it more. But there's a lot of people who had not used digital payments as much before and have realized how easy, convenient, and frictionless it is. So we'll continue to use it a lot more. And then I think when you actually think about that in the context of emerging markets where people are un- or underbanked, banks, bank branches where people in Mexico, for example, often go every two weeks when they get their, even if they're salaried employees, go and pull out cash from their bank accounts because they'd rather either keep their money in cash or they need to participate in a cash-based economy. There's only 15% credit card penetration in Mexico. You're seeing massive uptick in account signups for a lot of these digital banks in Mexico because people can't go to bank branches. So I think incumbents may be caught flat-footed in this context where they have very asset-heavy businesses that you know rely on people coming to a bank branch. That's going to change a lot. And I think that's under threat. So digital payments businesses, you know, businesses like Cash and Toss in Korea, you know, I think have real opportunities to gain market share as a result of all of this. And then I think the third thing is really you're going to have changing consumer behavior and people are going to think about things differently because of COVID. So one example of that is in our portfolio with a company called Farewell. Mentioned a little bit earlier, it's a estate planning business, does everything kind of comprehensive end-to-end, end-of-life planning process digitally. So they do digital wills, they do probate uh, and wealth deal with the wealth transfer associated with, with the bereavement process, and they do direct cremations. And a business like that People has grown meaningfully during COVID, unfortunately, but it's due to the fact in part because people, I think, are very aware of that bereavement and death is all around us and they need a plan for the end of life maybe earlier than they would have thought uh, or maybe hadn't thought about it much at all. So, you know, people are signing up for wills and they're doing it digitally because, again, they want better experiences. So I think there's an awareness of what's going on in the world and that's making people gravitate towards different types of consumer solutions, whether it's digital wills and estate planning like Fairwill, or companies kind of in the like remote online notary space like Notarize has grown meaningfully during COVID as well, because people realize I can't do things the way I did before. And I think once people realize that and they realize they're better experiences, because businesses like Fairwill are focused on an intensely better customer experience. They've done it in a cheaper way. They've done it digitally. They've built a team around them to really care about the consumer's experience and process, they focus on empathy. That's the type of business and product that I think will win in the future because they're doing things in a better way and people will realize that. 
Thank you very much for an insightful discussion so far. For the last part of our conversation, I'd like to bring it closer to home at Wharton. Do you have any advice for students and recent graduates who are looking to break into venture capital? Yeah, it's a good question. I think there's really no one way to get into VC. You look and see some of the best VCs in history have been career VCs. They've been bankers. They've been journalists. They've been operators. So there's really no one path in. I think that VC is the business of one, intellectual curiosity. So always learning, always asking questions and always asking why. So I think you actually depend, doesn't matter necessarily what your experience have been in the past, but if you can tie those experiences together and think about those experiences in the context of something that's happening in the world, in your life that really matters, then there's a way to have a view and come up with a thesis that may end up being an investable thesis. So I think that that's one thing that pretty much anybody can do, you know, whether they've had experience in investing or venture capital. Or not. The other piece of this is I think there's, there's a meaningful amount of resources out there that have been open source thanks to the internet. So there's plenty of great blogs. There's ways to learn about companies and create kind of your own views and theses on businesses or industries. So I think that's another piece where you, know, you as a recent grad, whether it's undergrad or, or MBA, can really leverage the kind of interconnected world of the inter internet. So post thoughts on Twitter, you can engage with people who you might not be able to engage with. You can create your own blog and create your own podcast. Like, you know, somebody like a Harry Stebbings has and, and has created a network and a understanding of VC at an incredibly young age. So I think all of those things are options for people kind of on the table as a way to get into VC. The other piece of it too, is not everybody may share this view. I do think that it's helpful to have experience on the operating side. And the reason why is if I think about, you know, my own experience as a VC, who knows if I'm good or not? I mean, it's still, you know, I'm not necessarily in a position to say that because only time will tell if I am. But I do think that having experience on the operating side, having to build startups from really a blank sheet of paper at iCapital, we had a blank sheet of paper and had to go find customers. We had to figure out what the right products for those customers were. We had to launch the product and then build and scale it from there. If I didn't have that experience, I don't think I'd be able to be of service to our founders in the same way that I am from having that experience. So I do think to the extent possible, it's really helpful to have experience on the operating side, whether it's as a founder or as an employee at a startup or fast growing company, because you just, you see things that you wouldn't otherwise see sitting 40,000 feet up as a VC and spending time with a bunch of different businesses, but never really getting in the weeds. So maybe this is more prevalent in seed and series A where we spend most of our time, where we're really helping our companies build businesses. We're kind of side by side with them, thinking about how can they get their next customer, what the right product is, what the right product market fit is, helping them hire their team, interviewing salespeople, whatever it may be to help them build their business. But I do think that's an important piece of it. So I think that that's something that I've found to be really helpful. And I think to the extent that people have the opportunity to really spend time in a business for a few years, if possible, then that's a great way to then kind of be a jumping off point to VC. Not to mention, you also have a great network as a result of that too. People in the startup world who may start companies, and that'll also help you as a VC. And as you would know, uh, Wharton and Penn have a great entrepreneurial ecosystem as well within the uh, student community. Given your operational background, is there anything you would add in terms of advice for those either looking to join fintech companies or even launch their own fintech startups someday? Yeah, it's a good question. 
you know, I think one is leverage the network that you have, right? I mean, I think there's they're building a company often takes a village and early on you're constantly selling, whether it's selling for hiring, bringing people onto the team, you're selling customers and you're selling investors. So within your own ecosystem, there's probably a meaningful amount of connectivity to people in the financial services world, whether it's incumbents or fintechs. And those can be great ways to validate ideas, get advisors or people who can help you with your business. And that ends up being so important early on. I mean, I think one thing that we look for as an early stage investor is people who had the hustle to go figure things out or bring people onto their business or get customers in really creative ways. And, you know, and often what that means is like, that shows up in a fundraising deck where they've gotten a set of advisors who may not otherwise have expected them to get and they're punching above their weight. And those kind of things tend to stand out because we see hundreds of businesses, if not thousands of businesses a year, anything you can do to give yourself that extra advantage, say, we stand out and here's why, and we did something that's different, or we got these people involved and they think this business is good. And those become validators for an investor. I think any of that really impactful. And finally, if you aren't an investor, what would you be doing instead? You know, to be honest, I think I, I would probably be a VC just because I love, I love building businesses. And I think it's a way to have an impact on people's lives. I love helping founders. Having been on the operating side, I've seen firsthand know how hard it is to be a founder. It's a very lonely journey at times and very difficult. So being able to help them build the businesses they want to build is something I feel that's really important and really enjoy doing. And then I love the impact that, that you can have on people's lives from creating businesses at scale. So, you know, so from that perspective, I think I'd probably be a VC. I think the other piece of it too is like, you're always learning something in this industry. I get to learn about new industries, new businesses, new business models every day. And if you're somebody who just loves learning and loves asking questions, I think my mom would tell you that the, you know, the question I always asked and the kid was why, uh, then, then I, I think maybe that's why I've naturally gravitated towards VC, maybe to, to, to wrap it up and bring it back to your early question about how did I get into VC. But I think from that perspective, that's, that's probably what I'd be doing. The other piece of VC as well is startups and building businesses is really about team building and culture. And it's a lot like sports. I played sports growing up. I was a competitive soccer player and you know, there's a lot of sports analogies in business building as well when it comes to team building, how do you build the right culture, but also like, how do you figure out how to win? And, and all of those things end up being really important when it comes to building a business. And, and often the best businesses think about that. They think about building culture in the right way deliberately in terms of who they hire, how they talk about their business, both internally and externally, and how they service their customers. So I think there's a lot of lessons to be taken from sports. And you know, growing up, I think a lot of the, the really memorable moments I had were when I was on my soccer team with kids from all over, all different backgrounds, spoke tons of different languages, and we were all working towards the same goal together of winning on the field and, and making sure, you know, we, we did our jobs. But part of that meant by being really close, both on and off the field. And I think the best, best companies and startups figure out a way to do that as well. Thank you. It's been a pleasure having you on the show, Michael. Thanks again for joining us. Yeah, thanks. And I really enjoyed it. And thanks for having me.